Welcome to this edition of What's the Score? Let me remind you, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please click the like button wherever you listen to this program. And if you'd like to support this and future programs, I encourage you to become a patron via patreon.com. There'll be details to follow in the middle of the program. We couldn't do the program without our patrons, so thank you. And enjoy today's wonderful podcast. Today's program made possible by patrons like you. Welcome to where we celebrate music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it all covered. We talk to those in the entertainment industry and find out about their favorite scores. You found the podcast, What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank R. Wilson. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and let's see what we'll be hearing today. Welcome to this very special edition of What's the Score? Now, we're deviating from our normal format today to address a controversial issue in cinema film music. The issue? Well, simply put, it's who wrote the James Bond theme? Now, many of you may think it was John Barry who worked on 11 scores for the film series. Others will know it officially written by Monty Norman. But the story behind the drama is a fascinating one, and we will attempt to break it all down. Now, mind you, we're not here to slander or challenge Norman's legal claim to full credit for the theme. That's already been established. We will, however, give another side to the story that has intrigued many people. Now, a warning for today's episode, we will not have a lot of music today, but we will have stimulating discussion. We'll have some samples of music, but it's mostly going to be discussion. Now, to do this, we have assembled a panel. Uh, The first time I've ever had more than one guest on at a time. I will admit we have loaded the deck with John Barry fans, but that's okay. It's my show and I can do that. (laughs) Anyway, many of you who follow soundtrack groups on social media will know their names. Now, from the UK, we have a past contributor to the program, Stephen Wilson, as well as a first-time appearance by a very knowledgeable person, who is Peter Greenhill. And finally, a person whose idea it was to do this topic, and a recent past guest and unofficial producer of today's podcast, Terry Wallstrom. Well, welcome, gentlemen. I'm really delighted to have you with us today. I I can't thank you enough for what no doubt is one of the most controversial and also one of the most interesting subjects in cinema film music today. Um, perhaps, because it, it, I didn't really give like a big uh, bio of each one of you as I was introducing you, but maybe if you wouldn't mind kind of telling us a little bit about what, I, this is going to sound weird, what qualifies you to, to talk about today's subject? 
not because you're some expert or or a musician or anything like that, but just you know, what is it that uh, that has piqued your curiosity and, and gives you the ability to be able to talk about the subject? And uh, perhaps Stephen, we'll, we'll start with you. Uh, sure. Well, what qualifies me to talk about this? Yeah, I might surprise you and say I, you know, I'm not a hundred percent sure that I am, but you know, none <laughs> of us were around in 1962, Frank. Um, but you know what? We we we've all listened to the music for not just a few years, but a lot of years. We've talked about it with a lot of fans. We we we've talked about it with a lot of musicians. Um, you know, some of us uh, attended the famous court case and have got lots of detailed notes. And I think between us, you know, um, we, we've sifted through a lot of that information. We uh, have strong viewpoints. We have strong viewpoints about what makes a good argument. We've got some strong viewpoints about what makes some of the bad arguments. Uh, and um, I think what I want to contribute to this it is not the pretense that I was there and saw it all and know everything that happened. Um, but I, I think I can input somewhat into what makes a strong argument for any conclusion, but also maybe what doesn't make a strong argument. Fair enough, fair enough. Well said, well said. Peter, I, I think you're in a unique position, which is why I'm so happy that you joined us today. Tell us a little bit about, um, I think you know what I'm asking. What is it that, that kind of, why are you sitting in the chair and talking to us today, I guess is well, the way I'll put it. Well, I mean, like Steve, I'm not an expert. Um, I... I'm in fact a retired teacher. I used to teach uh, science and maths and computing. Um, but I have been a, um, a film score fan and a film fan since the 60s. Um, I saw all the James Bond films at the cinema on, the first, on their first release. Um, and I'm a, um, I'm a moderator on the James Bond music Facebook group and the John Barry Facebook group. But in addition to that, I was fortunate enough to be able to attend the uh, the trial, the court case in uh, March 2001, where which was Monty Norman versus Times newspapers, which uh, and I attended every day over the two weeks of the of the case, and I did take qu quite a lot of notes. Yes, you did. Which which I've uh, revised, had a look, at, which I've revisited recently, <coughs> um, and I think that does give me. Um, you know, quite a bit of information that I can share about about uh, the James Bond thing and its uh, genesis. That and that's why I'm so glad you're with us today because at times I want to try to stick to knowable facts, things that we can document, and that's a big part of what you can provide because of the uh, your attendance at the trial. But then we're also going to, you know, we're, hey, we're going to express opinions and talk about, you know, maybe reasons why we feel differently or whatever. So, cool. again, I'm delighted you're with us, Peter. Now, and finally, Terry, what about you? What is it the, What is it that you bring to the table, I guess, is the way I will ask it? Well, like Peter, uh, I'm old enough to have been there at the beginning, I guess you'd say. I was born in 1947. Uh, when I was a little kid, uh, my grandfather and I would sit in front of the radio and we had listened to the Tune Detective, which was Dr. Sigmund Spaeth, PhD musicologist. Yeah. And he, he had a program where he would show that popular pieces of music could be feasibly derived from previous works, but not consciously. Like he took, yes, we have no bananas. Right. We have no bananas today. And he showed that it, it could be said to come from Handel's Messiah 
and my body lies over the ocean. It's like, <laughs> hallelujah, bananas, oh, bring back my body to me. So that, that stimulated my interest in analyzing music. And then Leonard Bernstein's Young People's Concert, Bernstein, for him, Sigmund's faith work was, was uh, stimulating. It inspired him to have this program where young people were exposed to how music was put together. And then in 1955, when I was eight, there was this big lawsuit in the news between uh, Dmitry Tiomkin, who had won the Academy Award for The High and the Mighty, and this classical, classical composer named Leon Navarro, who sued him. He said Tiomkin stole his theme from his cello uh, piece. And uh, Tiomkin called in, who else? The tune detective, Dr. Sigmund Spaeth. <laughs> and he demonstrated to the jury that you could almost derive any uh, seemingly stolen, plagiarized piece from the classical repertoire, but in his opinion, the uh, High and the Mighty significantly lacked the uh, harmonic context or dramatic intention necessary to be stolen, and it was impossible to get the High and the Mighty out of the enchanted uh, cello. So as I grew older and I discovered John Barry, and I, I found out who his tutors or teachers were, like Joseph uh, Schillinger, the music theorist. I got a hold of that book, the 400-page book, and I studied what Schillinger taught Barry. I also got Bill Russo's workbook for composing the, the jazz orchestra. And uh, I, I was trying to walk as far as I could in the footsteps. And then when I learned uh, how, how to uh, play the piano, I would take Barry's works and I'd try to pull them apart, deconstruct them, and put them back together just to simply understand from that point of view what is a John Barry composition. So that, if that's a qualification, I'm here. Okay. No, perfect. Well, well said. Well said. Okay. So here we are. I want to take uh, you guys and all our listeners back to the year 1962. And, and what I want to do is, is try to be as factual and as documented as we possibly can be about what transpired in 1962 when Dr. No was made and, and all these things happened concerning the theme, the score, and everything else. Um, and, and, and we have lots of documented cases of what happened. Some of them, you know, contradict one another, to be honest. You know, and to be fair, we know that. But at least... From your perspective, what what can we say is factually true about what actually happened in 1962? And Stephen, I'll will start with you. What what is kind of your understanding of the the uh, the progress of, of of how things happened in, in back in 1962? Sure, I'll share my understanding, but but I'm I'm gonna lean on Peter for uh, specifics in terms of sequences and dates, but. Absolutely. My best understanding, uh, based on what's been documented, based on stories that have been told, my best understanding is that clearly Monte Norman was hired uh, as the composer on the film Dr. No. We know that Monte Norman flew out to Jamaica. Um, if you think about it like this, it, you, you could broadly say that the music requirement for Dr. No included some... Um, Jamaican nightclub style music because of course this was the very first James Bond film, the formula hadn't been established but it certainly seems like the fact that this film was going to Jamaica was being used as an opportunity 
to uh, share some of that that Jamaican vibe with us uh, through some of the nightclub sequences of music and what and, and, and such like. Mm -hmm. um, so clearly, part of that was let's get some Jamaican style source music <laughs> into this film. There was clearly a requirement to put a song into this film, and that's the song that we, of course, uh, know as Underneath the Mango Tree. And, of course, the third requirement was to write the score. Now, clearly, clearly, getting that Jamaican music uh, and, the, um, and the song were going to be upfront pieces of work because, of course, that song was going to be sung on screen. Uh, and, of course, the way that I talk about that, it almost sounds like it's going to be a musical. I don't mean it like that, but it was going to be sung on screen. So clearly, there was a part of Monty Norman's work which was going to happen up front, uh, you know, whilst they were making the picture, and then there was going to be the follow-up work once the, the film was in the can to write the dramatic score. Now, my best understanding is that everybody was really happy with the Jamaican-style music, the Jamaican-themed music that, that he put together. Um, I assume everybody was delighted with Underneath the Mango Tree, uh, but my understanding is people were less pleased with the dramatic score that he written. And I've heard phrases like mining disaster music being used to describe Ter Terrence it. Young, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think yeah. the feeling was that, that, that yeah, okay, this is a 1962 film, but it felt like it was being scored like a 1940s or a 1950s film. You know, the, the music didn't seem to be with the, 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 the age. And so there was a degree of displeasure. Now, obviously, you know, uh, what, you're, what, what you're not necessarily going to be able to do is think, well, let's chuck the whole lot out because you've got all that stuff that was written up front, the Jamaican stuff underneath the mango tree. Uh, so my understanding is, well, look, we need to do some, we need to do a corrective steer on the dramatic side of this music. My understanding was that, that it was proposed that, look, if we get a really strong James Bond theme, then Peter Hunt can dial that in and dial that out of the music, uh, movie fairly liberally, and that whatever time we have left to finish scoring the picture, we can start to incorporate that theme uh, into some more music. So my understanding was that their recovery strategy, when the dramatic score wasn't pleasing everybody, was to create some kind of uh, James Bond theme. And my understanding is that D John Barry's name was thrown into the mix because you know, he had instrumental music uh, that people had heard, which had the kind of modern sound, uh, the kind of... Um, smooth but also slightly dangerous sound to it that people thought would work. So my understanding was it's like let's bring John Barry in and see if we can get a sound like that on something that maybe Monty Norman had composed because he's our contracted <laughs> composer so we can get a James Bond theme that gives us more of the sound that we're actually looking for, that Peter Hunt can dial in and dial out of the movie, and that maybe we can integrate in some of the scoring that hasn't yet happened. Okay. And of course, this is where stories divide. Monty's story um, was that, that, that you know, he wrote it, and John Barry arranged and orchestrated it. 
John Barry's story was he couldn't work with uh, the material that Monty Norman put forward, so he substantially wrote something new. Now, I think it's pretty well established, and I think there's a consensus of agreement that, uh, that the main melody of the James Bond theme does have origins in a piece of melody that Monty Norman did put forward and say, well, look, guys, I've got this musical, I've got this song for music, it's got a melody in it, maybe we can work with that. And I think there's a consensus of opinion that that is a seed, but I think there's also a consensus of opinion uh, that, w that what John Barry did was incredibly substantial. It was much more than just an arrangement or orchestration. Okay. But now we're starting to get into opinion. Uh, I know you want to come to that more later. That's my understanding of how the events unfolded. Thank you. Um, Peter, and I know it's going to be hard not to refer to the court case, but yeah. if, if you wouldn't mind not referring to the court mm -hmm. case, anything you'd want to add to uh, yeah. some of the things that Stephen yeah. uh, talked about? Yeah, I won't, I won't refer to the court case, but um, let me just fill in a bit of the detail. I mean, basically, um, Monty Norman had written a musical called Bell, which was an, about Dr. Crippen in 1961, which had a, um, was presented on the London stage, had 42 performances, so it wasn't particularly successful. But Cubby Broccoli was an investor in that musical. And based on the work that, uh, that Monty Norman had done on that musical, he offered Monty the, the job of scoring Dr. No. Now, the st Monty apparently wasn't too keen initially, um, <coughs> in that he, he saw himself quite rightly more as a, a stage musical composer, a musical theatre composer, rather than a film composer, even though he had scored a, a few movies. Um, and so was a bit reluctant. But Broccoli and Saltzman then said that if he agreed to score the film, then he could go with the crew to Jamaica <laughs> on, on location and take his wife, Diana Coopland, who um, in, in Britain is quite well known because she was in, in a, a TV series, Bless This House, from 1971 to 76. He could take his wife to Jamaica on location and he could spend his time in Jamaica going around sort of clubs and bars uh, Getting, seeing what, seeing if there were, he could get any ideas for the source music in the film. A dirty uh, job, but somebody had to do it, right? That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. So, on that basis, he agreed, and the crew set off um, in mid-January. I think it was the 13th of January. They flew out. Filming started in Jamaica on the 16th of January, and um, basically. Monty Norman was introduced to Chris Blackwell. Chris Blackwell oh, was wow. owner of Ireland Records at that time and was employed as a location scout um, by E.ON for Dr. No. And Chris Blackwell introduced Monty to various local musicians such as Ernest Wrangling, who's a guitarist, and Carlos Malcolm, who's a trom trombone player. So he, was, he got those introductions and I think he worked with those musicians uh, and came up with some source music and an initial idea for the James Bond theme. 
His initial idea for the James Bond theme is what we now know as Dr. No's Fantasy, and which is on the, the soundtrack album. Um, he says that at a fairly early stage, he decided, not the producers, but he, Monty Norman, decided it wasn't a suitable theme for the film, and scrapped that idea, um, even though it does appear on the soundtrack album. Uh, I think it's uh, track number 17. So they went to Federal Studios in Kingston and they did some recording sessions for source music and some demos for score. And a number of those tracks occur on the soundtrack album. Um, so filming finished uh, in, on the 21st of February and filming started again on the 26th of February at Pinewood and was completed completely 30th of March but the 30th of March filming on Doctor No was completed Wow! so we, they then went into post-production in wow. post-production early in May it was clear that there wasn't a, that Monty hadn't got a theme for the film he had ideas for the score he was he uh, was working on the score but he didn't have a theme <coughs> now at that point Harry Saltzman was suggesting that underneath the mango tree be used as the theme to the film now other people on the film such as Terence Young Peter Hunt were just appalled by that idea and clearly it wasn't going to work and had and, and if the, you know further Bond films were going to be made and how would how would underneath <coughs> the mango tree fit into from Russia with love for instance so that idea was scrapped so there wasn't a theme and it was at this point probably in early May of 1962 that Monty went to his bottom drawer took out his uh, un bad sign good sign from his unused mu from his musical that hadn't been produced A House for Mr Biswas which was based on a novel by V.S. Nepal so took that out and said I think that could be that that theme that melody could be the basis of a James Bond theme okay now now basically at that point the stories start to diverge but I think everybody's agreed that 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 was uh, that's the basic story up to that point leaving out a bit the controversial bit Dr. No whether, whether it was uh, orchestrated and arranged and written partly by John Barry or not, it was recorded on the 21st of June 1962 at CTS Bayswater. Okay, okay. Now, it, just oh, one quick ahead. thing, and then yeah, I'm finished. Yeah. Uh, after that, on the 23rd of July, a commercial recording of the James Bond theme was done at Abbey Road. And that was because part of the contract that they made with John Barry was that, um, that they, he would be able to do a commercial recording. Up to, John Barry, according to Norman, was brought in as an orchestrator and only did the orchestrations, i.e. he's putting instruments to notes in however John Barry was saying, I'm not going to go into more detail, John Barry was saying that I was brought in to take bad sign, good sign, as it was in Monty's bottom drawer, and to produce <laughs> something that sounded like the James Bond thing. That, and that's what I wanted to ask Terry about, if I, if I may, yeah. Peter. Sure. Is that okay? Of okay. Yeah, sure. 
be, because, as my listeners know, I'm not a musician. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know a lot about music from a technical standpoint. But I keep hearing these phrases. Oh, well, John Barry orchestrated it. He arranged it. What the heck does that mean? I mean, how do you get from I was born with, you know, how do you get from that <laughs> to, to the finished product? I mean, it sounds to me like it's more an orchestration. So, so Tara, I guess what I'm asking you is that, first of all, help us understand what is meant by, in, in terms that even a simple guy like me can understand, what do we mean by orchestrate and or arrange? Well, let's establish that, to his credit, Monty Norman was pretty darn good at doing witty songs, clever songs, and he was a very personable man, a hail fellow well met. He was good company. And uh, he, he knew the guy who had put up money for his musical, as Peter said. But it's like you got the guy working on your roof, he's re-roofing, doing a pretty good job, and now you need some gardening done, and you say, hey, come down here and work in my gardening. Uh, Monty Norman's expertise was fragile, I would say. He couldn't actually write, physically write music. He couldn't arrange music. He couldn't orchestrate music, but he always surrounded himself, himself with people who were very good at it. And Burt Rhodes, the orchestrator who was working with Monty Norman for half the fee, the 500-pound fee, was an excellent orchestrator. So, Monty, when he reached into that drawer, he was at wit's end. He couldn't fulfill his contract, and you had a ticking clock where this, the music had to be in the movie. So he pulled this thing out that had been useless to him. Good sign, bad sign, just it didn't work. But he had it, and he passes it to his orchestrator, Burt Rhodes, and whatever the two of them put together, that didn't work either because they did their best. So Monty Norman's failure is what triggered bringing in someone from the outside, which the contract said they could. Now, what was this guy from the outside going to do if you already had an orchestrator who was tip-top and you had the guy who had written out the notes? Is he just going to arrange it? No. You could say that Monty Norman handed John Barry the alphabet and said, can you give me King Lear? What had to happen... Okay, hang on. Dr- don't, 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 don't get too far into opinion yet. This is Be not careful. an opinion. <laughs> if you listen to what Monty Norman says he composed, listen to Good Side, Bad Side, listen to the James Bond theme, and you tell me which one is a nursery rhyme and which one is King Lear. I mean, that, that's not it. You take the expertise of each man and you set it down in front of you and John Barry had to completely remodel the house, let's say, from a one room to a mansion. Okay, okay. And I may come back to that question here in a moment about orchestrate and arrange because, well, I I just might because I kind of want to understand it better. It's transformation. Basically, it's transforming something you've got that you can't use. Well, I know, but, and again, to an uneducated, I'm, I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come yeah. back to that because I I don't want to get ahead of myself. I, I do think, however, it's important that we kind of give the, uh, the audience some examples of what what we're talking about that was so-called, you know, the, the genesis, so to speak, of the theme. So uh, we, we've mentioned it several times already. Uh, Monty Norman talks about uh, 
a, a song that he never used that was in his bottom drawer called Good Sign, Bad Sign. Well, we'll play that, maybe not the entire thing, but we'll play part of it. And and to the listeners, by the way, if you're like me, once you hear this, it's, it's like one of those irritating songs you can't get out of your head for a couple of days. <laughs> you keep hearing it over and over and over. But anyway... Uh, to be fair, let's let's hear what uh, what Monty had come up with, and uh, and see how that uh, may have indeed influenced uh, the finished product of the James Bond theme. I was born with this unlucky sneeze, and what is worse, I came into the world the wrong way round. Pundits all agree that I'm the reason why my father fell into the village pond and drowned. I was born under a bad sign. All of Trinidad said it was a bad sign. And Chinese, Africans and Portuguese Everybody worry about my sneeze Achoo! Pundit said I had unlucky teeth With little gaps between Now, and now Peter also mentioned, which I think is worth uh, pointing out That originally it was thought that uh, the, the so-called Dr. Nose Fantasy was a potential theme, so uh, I thought that uh, yeah, we would also share that with the audience, play that for uh, just a few minutes, and uh, give you a kind of a sense of flavor of what Monty was thinking about uh, originally before they settled on something else. So here's a, a, a portion of Dr. No's Fantasy. There were some other influences too that I know that is, some of you guys have brought up. I, I'm going to say something maybe a little controversial. I don't know. I, I want to say, I want to say that potentially, possibly, maybe it was Henry Mancini that maybe kind of got the sound of spy music started. And maybe you guys know where I'm going with this. This is because of the theme from a, a, a TV series called Peter Gunn. And, and if I recall, and maybe Stephen, you might know this, if, if I recall, I thought I heard that uh, John Barry, did John Barry mention Peter Gunn as maybe being a, a little bit of an influence, or, or, or if he didn't, do you think it was an influence? I, I, I think it was. I think that, that, I think that Peter Gunn uh, was something that, that, that set a standard for uh, 
for what a spy would sound like. And, and I think that there is a degree to which the final product of the James Bond film um, is, uh, is, is following on from that standard. Um, I think that the, the reason, by the way, that I use the phrase the, the, the final product is because I think where we're all going to be going with this is that there was some initial product, there was some final product, and there was a, an amount of transformation between the two. Uh, so, but to answer your direct question, do I think that Peter Gunn was an influence? Yeah, I do. Okay, okay. And I know, uh, uh, Terry, you've mentioned that there was also, you thought, and again, I don't know if this is quotable or if it was you know, documented someplace, I think you also mentioned <laughs> that the theme from The Untouchables may have had an influence. Yeah, two specific things. What Peter Gunn had going for it was a driving ostinato. John Williams on the bass keys of the piano was going bum 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 better bum 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 better bum bum and that drove it like a, a, a choo choo train down the tracks. Right. And if you take the guitar theme of uh, the James Bond theme, it works the way an ostinato would work, except it becomes the melody. So that's a transformation of an ostinato into a melody. Now, as far as uh, the uh, the Untouchables. It took the rising and falling figure and made it a falling and rising figure, and plus the the accent on on the second and fourth rather than the first and the second. In other words, it goes mba 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 mba, and James Bond goes mba 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 mba. He he flipped it. Okay, okay. Now. Peter, I'm kind of curious, because here, here's where I'm going to go with this. We're going to start talking about the end result, and I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this and uh, what you think. I've always maintained, and I'm going to throw a little opinion out here, not a lot, but a little. I've always maintained that, in essence, with, with some minor changes, that at least the guitar riff was something that could be credited to Monty Norman. And the only reason why I say that is that there's several times in the film where you hear horns playing something close to that riff. Um, several times throughout the film, which, which, t and I, and I, and I know we're going to have a discussion about this, and I, and I want to. Uh, you know, um, I probably don't uh, hum it as good as uh, as Terry does, but I mean. That was kind of how it went. I've recorded it on a phone. It's not really great quality recording. We'll have a listen here in a minute. But that kind of made me think a little bit about, okay, you know, maybe he did that part fine because it shows up on the film a couple of times. Do you know what I'm talking about, Peter? And what are your thoughts on it? Um, I think, basically, it, let me just say that I don't think there's a lot of dispute that the James Bond theme is in somewhat uh, part the riff, the guitar part is derived from um, basically from bad sign, good sign. Right. Uh, I don't think that's that that's fairly well agreed. Even Barry said that he used he used he used the opening the opening few bars. What where the problem is 
in what you're what you're saying about the the, the riff turning up within the score, there's two different points of view. Monty Norman would say that at some point early in May, after he'd taken the the uh, bad sign, good sign out of his bottom drawer and started working on it, before Barry had ever been brought into the uh, into working on the James Bond theme, he and Burt Rhodes incorporated that riff as part of the score, which is what we hear today when we're watching the movie. John Barry, however, said not that he didn't think was it the case at all, because when he'd recorded the James Bond theme on the 21st of June at CTS Bayswater, at the end of the session, he gave the manuscripts over to E.ON, to the E.ON representatives who were present at the session, he gave the manuscript. The score, the score for Dr. No, as, um, record, as uh, orchestrated by Burt Rhodes, was, record, was recorded at Denham on the 25th and 26th of June. Uh -huh. so, in other, so there was four days after the recording of the James Bond theme when it would be possible, possible to actually incorporate the, the riff melody into the score. So you've got, you've got diverging opinions on that. Okay. Norman and Barry gave in court gave a d differing version of <coughs> why that why that theme occurs within the score. Okay, and 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 we'll, we'll get back to that later. Um, let, let, let's hear example. Well, let's hear the example that I'm talking about first. Again, this was recorded on a phone over speakers because it's not on the soundtrack album. Uh, you're going to hear some dialogue as well, so you know I apologize for that. But hopefully you'll at least hear what it is that I'm talking about that kind of, you know, sounds like it could be the riff from the James Bond theme. Let's just, uh, it, it's a very short clip. Let's just have a listen to this. Now, Mr. Jones, talk fast before your friend doubles back. Who are you working for? I don't know what you're talking about. I was just sent to meet you at the airport. I mean, by whom? By... Now, of course, after all this stuff that you that you guys have all discussed, we come up with a final product. A final product that, let's face it, is iconic. And perhaps the... Yeah, I'll be as so bold to say, perhaps the most famous piece of music in cinema history. I, you know, I mean, there might be some others that I'm not aware of, but this one certainly comes in the top three, if nothing else. And this is the version that most people are familiar with, at least from the very beginning. So let's uh, let's sit back and have a, a great enjoyment and listen to this uh, wonderful tune, <coughs> the James Bond theme.
So, Peter, help remind me, Did um, when was the recording that took place for the James Bond theme that as it appeared in the film? That was recorded at CTS Bayswater in London on the 21st of June, 1962. Okay, okay. That, all right, so now that... Which is before, if I if memory serves, is before the score was actually recorded. Is that right? Correct. Okay. The, the score was recorded 25th, 26th of June at Denham. Interesting. That adds more intrigue to the whole whole discussion. Okay. Good. Good. Alrighty. We'll get back to our program in a minute. This program is done for the love of film and film music, plain and simple. However, it does take a huge investment in time and in fees for me to make the program work for you. I don't sell commercial time and don't really want to on this program. Rather, I'm kind of like a, a public broadcasting station. I need support from listeners like you. For as little as $3 a month, you can help me uh, uh, offset the time spent in putting the program together. Or maybe you just think of it as leaving a tip in the tip jar. Either way, if you can join up, there will be bonuses, like an additional 10 to 15 minute segment with our guest every week, where we'll play additional cues as well as ask us some extra questions. And it's going to be only available to patrons. How do you sign up? Well, it's simple. You go to patreon.com slash what's the score, and that's all one word. That's patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash what's the score. Check it out. We'd be grateful for your support. That's patreon.com. Now, what I want to do is I want to fast forward 40 years, about, I guess, thereabouts. What's interesting is that um, something happens, and and perhaps, Stephen, maybe you can kind of share this with us uh, from your perspective. What is it? I think it's 2001. I can't remember the exact year or whatever, but uh, an, an article appears, and I guess it was in the Sunday Times in, in, in the U.K., Tell us a little bit about uh, what happened then and what does that have to do with our discussion today? Sure. Well, as you said, the Sunday Times published an article um, and that article was um, praising the music of John Barry. And in that article, the the author of that article uh, essentially made the claim that Monty Norman was not the author of the James Bond (laughs) theme and John Barry was. Uh, Montenon was un- was upset by that, and uh, he instigated a legal action. And it's very important, and I know that Peter will back me up on this, very important for us to be clear what that case was, because a lot of people have talked about it as if the question being put to the court was who wrote the James Bond theme, but that's not accurate. The purpose of the case was to establish whether the Sunday Times had libeled Monty Norman in that article. 
So it wasn't answering the question, who wrote the James Bond theme? It wasn't answering the question of how much of the James Bond theme each man might have wrote. It was only establishing, was Monty Norman libeled when it made the claim that he did not write the James Bond theme? Huh. Now, the first question that comes to mind, and maybe you're... Any of you could chime in, but Stephen, the first to you is that how do you separate the two? I'm I'm not sure I understand how you can separate. Well, we're not here to question who wrote it. Well, we're just I I I have a hard like time this, separating them. Yeah, well, put it like this, Frank. In order to establish whether Montenorman had been libeled by that article, article, all you have to demonstrate is that um, is that. Monty Norman had written at least something. Hmm. You do not have to question whether John Barry also wrote something. You don't have to answer the question of how much each man might have written. You wow. only have to establish if Monty Norman wrote anything at all for that for him to have been libeled. And that's why the court case wasn't who wrote the James Bond theme and wasn't how much might have been written by each man. Because let's put something on the table. Whether you call it arrangement, or whether you call it orchestration, the fact of the matter is that John Barry wrote stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in order to have not been libeled the way that the article was written, you, you would have had to have been able to demonstrate that John Barry wrote everything. Hmm. And the okay. court case wasn't about that. The court case was simply, was Monty Norman libeled? And to establish libel, it was sufficient to demonstrate that at least part of the James Bond theme can be traced to Monty Norman's work. Okay. And good good, uh, good description. That helps me a lot. Peter, um, you were there. Oh. You were there. Did they... First, you know, I was going to say, give us an overview of the trial. That probably is going to take two hours. I don't know. But <laughs> based on what, what Stephen just said, in your view, we're getting into opinion now, but in your view, did they establish that? That, yes, indeed, Monty, you know, did write some of it, at least? Well, the, the, firstly, the burden of proof was on the defense, right? So, okay. Times newspapers had to establish that Barry had written everything in order to win the case. Huh. So, so that is, that's an important thing to remember. The burden of proof was on the defence. Um, let me just take you back a little bit. I sure. mean, let, let's just look at the... I'm not going to read out the whole article, but I'll just read yeah. out a, few, a couple of key paragraphs. Okay. Um, one is that... One says... Um, Barry is not the first man to lay claim to Norman's greatest hit. A Jamaican musician who 10 years ago claimed he had sold the tune to Norman for $20 lost his case after Norman was able to prove he had never visited the West Indian island, but Barry is a more formidable adversary. Also, it goes on to say, Barry launches his hitherto unsuspected claim in the rock magazine Mojo, published this week. In a sworn statement, Barry said... If I didn't do it, why did they, the film producers, not continue to employ Mr. Norman for the following Bond movies? He always says that, yeah. Um, it also says, and not uh, Monty didn't like this bit, where it says, since the first Bond film, 
opened in 1962. Royalties for the theme, with its hallmark guitar played by Vic Flick, have gone to Monty Norman, a little-known London musician. Now, however, John Barry, the Oscar-winning composer behind the bulk of the Bond soundtracks, is claiming that he wrote 007's most familiar theme. So you get a sort of a, a flavour of the article there. This was written by John Harlow, who was the arts correspondent. The date was the 12th of October 1997. And just to give you an ex uh, just to clarify what happened, on the evening of October the 11th, Monty Norman was on his way home with Rena, who, who at the time of the court case was his wife, but at that time was his girlfriend. And they were on their way home from an event, from an evening out, stopped off at a garage, picked up the Sunday Times, drove home. Got in. Rena went straight to bed because it, it was quite late. Monty stayed downstairs, read the Sunday Times. A couple of hours later, Rena wakes up. Monty hasn't come up to bed. She goes down and she finds Monty slumped over his, the table with the Sunday Times in front of him. And as she walks in the room, he picks up the Sunday Times, shakes it and says, look at this, look <laughs> at this, in quite a state of distress. Um, now, Rena was a, a witness at the, at the court case and she said, but Monty was extremely distressed. It resulted in their marriage actually being postponed because of the, the distress and upset that it had caused. But on the basis of that article and taking advice from, uh, from solicitors, he, they launched a court case against Times newspapers, not against John Barry, not right. against Mojo magazine where the statements first appeared. They took it out against Times newspapers. And I think... Probably the answer for that is that it's um, Times newspapers, a large corporate entity. Probably um, there would be more sympathy amongst the jury uh, for taking a case against a, a large uh, business concern rather than an individual such as John Barry or a smaller publication like Mojo. And it was uh, a jury trial, correct? It was, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, um... The, uh, just right now, I mean, it's you've helped educate me a lot because I've always kind of wondered about this trial, and yet I've never seen it from the perspective that you provided to me. And maybe it's because I'm American. I don't know. So that's why I'm going to ask the American on the panel, Terry. What what uh, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, and the question I wanted to ask you was that: What do you think was missing from this trial, or or uh, or was there? Given the given what they were attempting to uh, uh, prove or whatever, was there anything missing from the trial? Um, in my opinion, yes. Uh, there's a lot of things that I don't I don't know that they were properly established. For example, the whole thing is a matter of contract for one thing. So Norman's going to get credit for it no matter what. It's like a guy who writes a book but he brings in ghostwriters. They, the ghostwriters don't they don't get credit for it because he has a separate contract with it. But if you get down to the actual authorship of it, we need to know where did that sheet of paper in the bottom drawer come from? What is its provenance? You can't sell a work of art at an auction house unless the provenance is established. Who owned it? How long did they own it? Who owned it after that? 
And I, I don't know that it was established that Monty wasn't constantly adding notes or, dramatic pause, splitting notes <laughs> in, in order to uh, mimic John Barry's ostinato that really made that, that piece. So unless you establish that, uh, we have to rely on what Norman has, uh, over the years, been more and more details. And his, his participation in it gets greater and greater. His story just, it, it grows voluminous like mushrooms after a rain. It does, and, and, and unfortunately, especially now at this date, to the best of my knowledge, I think all the major players that would have had any kind of knowledge about this whole thing, they're all dearly departed now. So we, and even if they were alive, the chances are their memory was really sharp on it would uh, would be next to nothing. It um, and, and another problem, uh, the jury they have I th in the United States, you have to have a jury of your peers, but I'm not sure that the jury were musical peers, people who understood anything about music except by the way it was presented to them in court and I think that really muddy muddies the uh, the issue yeah well, because John Barry's very extreme style is nothing like Monty Norman's style true true so it's kind of interesting it it I, I'm learning I think maybe for the first time that like a lot of people they kind of felt like the trial was supposed to settle the issue once and for all. Who wrote the James Bond theme? But it didn't. That really wasn't wasn't uh, wasn't the the goal of the trial at all. So, kind of talk to me about that, Peter. Uh, uh, I heard you talking a little bit about it. Um, yeah. Do you? Let's face it. I mean, did Barry contribute to the theme at all? And and if so, what did he contribute other than just so-called orchestration and arrangement? Well, I think I think I think he I think he did contribute a substantial amount. I think the uh, whether it was composition, whether it was arrangement, whether it's orchestration, is debatable. And I think musicologists are the people who can who can clarify that issue. But I think what was what was agreed by both sides in court was it was a substantial amount of work to get from bad sign, good sign, as it came out of the drawer, to the James Bond theme, as it was recorded at CTS Bayswater, for the main title of the film. Someone had done a, a, a large amount of work to get from one point to the other. The, uh, the Monty Norman side would claim that basically Monty Norman, with Burt Rhodes, had done the bulk of that work. And it was, be, it was due to their efforts um, that, that an arrangement was given to John Barry at a cafe in Denmark Street for Barry to orchestrate, i.e. put notes to instruments. <coughs> um, John Barry disagreed. John Barry said he took the, the manuscript that came out of Monty's bottom drawer, the bad sign, good sign, took it and... and whether he wrote, he wrote extra material, he, he orchestrated, he arranged, but he produced it, he made it into the James Bond theme. Okay. Now, there's no, it's agreed that the riff in the James Bond theme is derived from bad sign, good sign. But 
in court, there were those who would argue that although it's derived from bad sign, good sign, the notes in the James Bond theme on the riff are not exactly the same as the notes on bad sign, good sign. That there were changes and that you get into this, uh, this technical stuff about note splitting and all the rest of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, for me, I think Barry did make a substantial contribution, but that's not to say that I, I think Monty didn't deserve some sort of credit. I think clearly the, 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 the riff based from Matt Badson could sign, entitled him to a, to a credit, but was it a full credit? Well, that, that's a real question. There, there I mean, we go. That, that's kind of yeah. where we're going to go eventually in this discussion. Yeah. Stephen, um, w would you say, and again, forgive my singing ability or whatever, but I mean, all the stuff, you know, da 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 all that stuff. Did Monty write that, or do you think, it's his opinion now, it's, you know, it's stuff we well, don't yeah, know it, for sure. What do you think? Opinion. I think that, um, look, if, a lot of this is going to be a bit semantic, right? But if we were talking about a screenplay rather than a piece of music, we would call what John Barry did a rewrite. Mm. Um, you mm. might, you might, you know, in screenplay terms, it might be, you know, um, that that one writer submitted not even a script but an outline, and somebody did a rewrite. Uh, you, you'd call it a rewrite if you were talking about script. Um, now, how much of that rewrite uses what came before is the bit that's never been satisfactorily proven, but has been left to people's uh, interpretation and preferences and opinions. Now, uh, my understanding is that the court case uh, didn't necessarily um, play judgment or give judgment on every single bar. There was discussions of bars and there was discussions uh, about who uh, wrote what in various places, but the court case ultimately did not make judgment on who wrote every bit. It was only seeking to make judgment on whether um, whether Monty Normal was libeled by the Sunday time. Um, but you know, Peter's got the uh, the, the notes here. There, there there was an opinion that that middle section um, could be traced to good sign, bad sign, huh. but it was also stated that, um, that that Barry's contribution was at minimum quote-unquote extreme arrangement. Now, infer <laughs> from that what you will. Infer from that what you will. But the bottom line is that, as Peter said, there was a great deal of transformation from good sign, bad sign, to the James Bond theme. The court case did not determine exactly who did what in that transformation. Now, I'm a big proponent of the message that inference does not equal evidence, and it doesn't. Inference does not equal evidence. But you do have to ask the question, that if Monty Norman and Bert Rhodes had done the bulk of the work between them, why did they need John Barry? That's the bit I don't understand if they did the majority of the work. Now, Barry's claim was 
that he did the majority of that transformative work. Uh, the court case did not make a judgment on how much of the transformative work each man did, although <coughs> it was discussed. Stephen, I'm curious. We never saw, and, and you know, if someone else knows differently, I'm, but I'm just directing it, Stephen. We never saw a before and after, did we? About here's the sheet music that uh, that Monty presented to to Barry. Okay, you know, here's this thing. Make it better. We haven't seen that sheet music versus what John Barry came up with. So that you could compare side by side the differences. Is that right? We never saw that. John Barry threat, threatened to do it. He threatened to take out a full-page ad in Variety and say, Monty Norman can post the James Bond theme and put Monty Norman's sheet music on the left side and John Barry's arrangement on the right side and let the, you know, the public decide. And the attorney on the other side did not take that bait. Stephen? There we talked about provenance. Um, now, I, I hate to bring this up because it does suggest the possibility, the opportunity for some dishonesty. Uh, and I'm not saying anybody was being dishonest. I want to be clear about that. I'm not saying anybody was. But e even if pieces of paper were produced, you would have to ask the question, uh, yeah, how do we know this is the original piece of paper? Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would. Yeah. In a murder trial, you have to have best evidence. You can't have copies of best evidence. It, it will not be admitted as evidence. And it, it just uh, gobsmacks me that uh, the defense didn't have more of a sense of a murder trial than anything else. I think we all know the answer to the question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What does, what does meaning credit mean? To a composer, because it was only credited to Monty Norman, I, and I guess where we're all, all four of us are going, is that at the very least there should have been a co-writing credit. I, I don't think there's a question amongst the four of us on that. But so, I mean, again, I think I know the answer, but it's worth having a brief discussion about it. What does credit for well, writing something mean to a composer? Well, I suspect it means a lot because it means on the. On the first thing it means is they are actually going to get paid for their contribution. So if, if their name is, is, if they're credited with a composition or an arrangement, then they will receive, and the second thing is status. It improves their status within the film and the, the music business. Um, whoever, I mean, I think it's clear that Monty Norman gained, gained a great deal of status from his name being on the credits as a composer of the James Bond thing, or that he wrote the James Bond thing. Um, it, it, it basically, the uh, it gave him a steady income stream for, for, for the whole of his life, and it, it put him in the public eye. He was, he was invited to all the Bond premieres. Uh, he did TV interviews, newspaper interviews, based on having the credit as having composed the James Bond thing. Have, have third, any of you... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Just one more quick thing. And the third thing is it means more work. If you're credited with successful compositions, then basically you're going to get more work um, to score other films or write more, more music. So, yeah, it means a lot. Well, but what's interesting is that, did that really translate 
for for Norman, I, I don't think he. No, because he had a reputation, and John Barry had a reputation. And in the business, you're hired on your reputation, not your credits, because anybody in Hollywood will tell you credits can be fudged. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, it's it's, and I agree with everything that Peter said, but it's kind of interesting how I don't, in my humble opinion, don't think it really applied in in uh, Monty Norman's situation. I you know I don't see a long list yeah. of other film credits or song credits as a result of having done that it should have based on what he, what peter is saying it should have if it had he's a right, foundation but, yeah because he's right but it didn't happen now, i'm curious and and i guess i'll open this up to any of you that want to respond i can't remember where i saw this but i saw a list of the uh residuals that monty norman got year to year to year to year to year it was like one year he'd get 35,000 pounds, the next year he'd get 800 pounds. Have any of you guys ever seen that? you know the list I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. I've got it in front of me, Frank. And if you want, I'll just quickly read it out. Please. Um, just to, um, this, a member of the jury asked um, at the end of one of the day's uh, sessions if the jury could see how much Monty had earned from the James Bond thing over, huh. the, over, over the years. And that evening... Uh, Norman went through his uh, records and he came back in court the next day with with the figures for between 1976 to 1999. He said the other figures were in a different diary in a different house. Right, very quickly. In 1976, 9,000 pounds. This is from the James Bond theme. Right. 1977, 7,000 pounds. 1978, 6,000 pounds. 1979, 5,000 pounds. 1980, £7,000. £1,990, £22,000. £1,990, £22,000. £1,990, £1,990, £1,990, uh, in 1991, it went up from 22 to 32, mainly because there were CD releases and the popularity of the films. Ah, okay. And that, and that big jump in 1998 um, was due to various video games, including Goldeneye being released, for which he got fairly substantial royalties. Huh. Okay, okay. Huh. So, needless to say, one can understand why... Sean Barry may have been may have said, you know, geez, it would have been nice to have a little bit of that action. Well, um, it shows it shows the desperation on Monty's part of losing that stream of revenue. He was yeah. forced forced to sue, or else he would be humiliated. Because who had the better reputation as somebody who produces? Yeah, and it's interesting because I mean, you know, not that I would turn it down, but those those. Those first few numbers that uh, Peter was reading were, I mean, they were nice, but they weren't like, you know, life-changing or, you know, uh, could pay pay your expenses for a year. But, boy, then it started to grow big time. So that's interesting. Let me... Um, yeah, you know what, Frank? The, 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 but I think we need to be clear about this. I don't think sure. John Barry's motivation was ever financial. I don't think he ever challenged the fact that Mon Monty Norman had the contractual right to those because, you know, he, he signed up 
to the agreement. He, yeah. he knew what the agreement was. It was never it was never about recovering money from John Barry's point of view. Now, obviously, yeah, I, I didn't know Barry. I couldn't speak for him, but based on everything that I've heard him say, and, and based on on the things that, that that we've read, which are reliable, I don't think that the that, that John Barry's motives uh, for for signalling to the world um, uh, that 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 you know. Um, that in in his view he was the true author of the theme. I don't think it was ever economic. I, I, I think that was. I, I I can only assume it was more a case of look. I would just like to be recognised for for the work that I claimed that I did. I don't think it was ever there was ever an economic motive behind it. I I, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. I, I, you know. The man had enough money anyway, and and but it was more of a, a sense of pride. I, I understand that. So, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, there's a term called stolen valor. It's where a soldier claims to have served in the army and they were a hero and they got the, you know, the uh, the Purple Heart and all that. And and once people who actually serve find out that a guy's been claiming that valor, it really rankles them. And in this sense, I think John Barry was perfectly if not happy, he, he was uh, at, at peace in his mind that that's the way it was going to go for Monty until Monty's claims kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger as to what he had done. You know, he would get interviewed every once in a while, and those interviews, they, they're quite lavish and fabulous. <laughs> do you, um, Peter, do you think... It's impossible to, to say for certain. This is all speculation, but do you think that John Barry regrets the way he handled the whole thing? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I, as Steve said, I don't think he ever re- he ever was interested in the money. He probably made more from Born Free. Uh, <laughs> he made enough from Born Free to last the rest of his life and more. So. Uh, in, and to live a you know a good lifestyle, so I don't think he was he was that interested in the money. What what upset him, I think, was constantly being asked questions by by journalists about the James Bond thing. And in the early years, he was happy to say no, it was Monty, Monty composed it. You know, it's on the credits. But in the end, he got so fed up with being asked, he he just said, well, no, I did, you know, I did it, I wrote it, it it's my work. And that is what ultimately calls led to the uh, to the court case. Um, well, and it's interesting too because Barry always said, "Well, then you know, why didn't they ask him back for the next one?" Yeah, a lot of right. people don't realize that the next film that that Broccoli and uh, Saltzman did, I think it was Call Me Buono, whatever, and they brought back Monty Norman for that yeah. immediately following. So they did bring him back for quote the next one. It wasn't mm-hmm. the next Bond film, but they did bring him back for the next film. So it's just a little interesting. Side note there that... Uh, well, money worked cheap, let's face it. <laughs> well, well and, and, and Peter, back to you for just a moment. I am uh, curious, because yeah. I don't know how the uh, the UK justice system works. Did the jury have to be unanimous in their verdict? Or was it, like in the US, if it's a civil case, it's like all you need is a, is a majority. Did they have to be uh, unanimous? Uh, it was a unanimous verdict, because they, they didn't say that they couldn't come to a, an agreement. So... I mean, basically, they went out on a, fr- on a Friday afternoon, uh, about two o'clock, they went out to deliberate. <coughs> and by the end of the afternoon, two, two and a half hours later, they still hadn't come to a, a verdict. Those of us who were in court actually sat and watched 
doctor know on the the court video um <laughs> Uh, with Monty there showing his uh, grandchildren the uh, uh, some of the wonderful cues that he uh, he wrote, um, and then about after an hour on the Monday morning, uh, they ca- they came out and, and had reached a verdict. So it was unanimous. It was unanimous. Okay. Um, I think had they not been able to reach a verdict, then the judge could have given them the uh, the right to uh, to reach a majority vote, but that wasn't the case. Okay, yeah. so so the judge could have done that. He could have done, yes. Huh. Okay. I, 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 I would interject. Oh, go, go ahead, Stephen. Go ahead. Uh, I mean, yeah. Obviously, I think everybody around this table supports the view that 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 John Barry was a massive creative force in the James Bond theme, by whatever you want to uh, call that creative force. That the fact of the matter is, he was a substantial creative force in, in, in the final product of the James Bond theme. But do you know what? Even I would have to say that, that, that it was satisfactorily demonstrated that at least the riff is traceable to Monty's work. And that's all that was necessary uh, to, to, to um, find in favor of libel. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would agree with you on that. That's uh, again, that's something I've learned in, as a result of today's discussion. Um, Personality-wise, as far as in court, Monty is a very entertaining and affable fellow. He he communicates his sense of self in an entertaining way, whereas Barry was ill and. From what I understand from the descriptions of his condition during the, the trial, he looked like this old rich guy with a sour puss. And Monty, here is this guy, he's singing to you and he's telling stories, you know, and he, and he looks like he was quite hurt over having his reputation, you know, soiled. So just on a very human level, I think that worked against John Barry. Could I have, agree. could have. And, and I, I seem to recall from Peter's notes on the trial... Because I think a key witness on this would have been uh, Peter Hunt. But apparently, I mean, he reluctantly did testify on video, I guess. Is that is that right, Peter? No. The, the, uh, one, the defense, one of the defense uh, solicitors phoned him in California and um, asked him various questions about the, uh, the James Bond theme. And the, the uh, solicitor took notes... And the solicitor testified in 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 the court uh, ah. from his notes as to what Peter Hunt had said. Now Peter Hunt was was actually quite unwell at the time, um, and wasn't willing to travel to to London to testify in person. He did give um, he did give this phone testimony, but uh, it, it was a bit vague to be honest. Um, Basically, he kept saying it's too late and that John Barry should have done something about this years ago. Um, I don't think his memory was particularly good. The, uh, the prosecution said that they didn't think he was a reliable uh, witness or he is, certainly his, uh, his memory may have been faulty. And in fact, Peter Hunt died about 18 months after the, the court case, um, which shows that he wasn't in great shape at that time. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, there, there have been... I mean. From earlier on, there, before the court case, there was evidence, or there, there were articles, 
um, there was um, commentaries on, on DVDs which said that in fact John Barry was was actually brought onto the case to try and sort out the James Bond thing because his assistant, a young man called Ben, recommended John Barry to Peter Hunt and said, why don't you use John Barry to help sort out this theme problem you've got? And so Peter Hunt suggested using Barry because of the recommendation from, from his assistant. Huh. But at the, at the same time, um, Noel Rogers, who was head of um, music publisher United Artists in London got a recommendation from Teddy Holmes who worked for Chapel Music who also suggested John Barry based on, you know, he'd had three or four hits at that time, he'd scored a couple of uh, minor movies and so you had two recommendations coming in <clears throat> one from Peter Hunt one from Noel, Noel Rogers and I think once Broccoli and Saltzman and Young saw that, got read those two uh, two recommendations they said yeah we'll go for it and, and yeah. they went for Barry and let's face it too all, you, you guys all know as perhaps a lot of our audience as well that Barry had made no bones about it that he wanted to break into film composing and it was a big deal to him to get his foot in the door and he'd, he'd only kind of just kind of tipped his toe in the water a little bit and this was an opportunity to get another you know big chance at it and so I'm sure that was why he was willing. Well, fine, 200 pounds, okay, I'll do it. You know, I, I don't need the credit, whatever. Yeah, uh, be, because it, as Stephen has rightly pointed out, it wasn't about money. It was about the opportunity to work in film, knowing that down the road this was going to pay dividends. Is that does that make sense? It does. He wanted to break in to to score bigger films. He wanted to make a breakthrough, and so therefore he was willing to take the 250 pounds. Um, and the lack of credit but of course when he accepted that deal nobody knew just how iconic the James Bond theme was going to oh, become yeah. nobody knew that the James Bond series was going to last 60 years and we tw across 25 films and, and perhaps Stephen wants to tell the story do you because uh, 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 I'm sure you know it what was it uh, John Barry uh, just, uh, hadn't seen a look hadn't seen a frame of film you know he came up with the theme recorded it time passes the movie comes out, I guess on a Sunday afternoon, he decides to go and see the movie himself for the first time, and lo and behold, what happens? Stephen, do you, you know where I'm going with that? I, I do, yeah. It's the story that Barry's told. I mean, in, in preparing the James Bond theme, he didn't have a lot of time. Uh, so, yeah, he didn't screen the movie, but he knew the character from the Daily Mail cartoons. Right. Um, so that, that that's the story that he tells. Uh, of course, they put the theme together... And then he goes and sees the movie with a regular audience and finds that this theme is pasted all over the movie. Yeah. So the story, as he tells it, I'm, I'm only I'm only recapping the story that we've all heard. Sure. But he, he gets on the phone and um, yeah, has a bit of a moan that, that 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 he thought he was just providing a title piece, and it turns out this music is all over the film. And you know he gets placated uh, with uh, with look, you know. Um, yeah, we, 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 we use that theme a lot. Uh, but, you know, you, you've got good face, you've got good favor with us. You know, you, 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 you're probably going to get the opportunity to do the follow-up film. Uh, so, yeah, we, we hear you, but it's going to play out well for you. Yeah, that, yeah, but that's the story that he tells, yes, or now, told. Now, you know, Terry, it's interesting. I'd be, I'd be curious what you think about this. I, I, and I thought about this in preparing today. You, you watch Dr. No, 
and and the atmosphere that the score creates. And then you watch From Russia With Love and the atmosphere it creates. Oh my gosh! What a difference! Don't I mean, talk to me about that. Do you think any human being who's ever breathed on planet Earth ever ran into their local record store and said, Do you have any Monty Norman records? <laughs> and, and, and it's sad, too, because, I mean, I, I actually, I wouldn't mind hearing some of the score on, on the sound. The soundtrack's a lousy representation of the score, isn't it? Or the best possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's mo- as you guys have pointed out, it's mostly like the source music and some other stuff. But It's probably Burt Rhodes doing his finest work. <laughs> it might be, it might be. Well, look, I... Frank, there's... Sir. There's, I want to go back to a point you you were asking earlier about credit. Yes. Uh, now, of course, credits do have implications. They have, as Peter said, they have pride implications and they have economic implications. But but we also also know that that credits are generally an oversimplification of the creative process. We know that ghostwriting is a thing. Uh, and people in the industry know that ghostwriting uh, is a thing. Right. And so when we talk about the question of the meaningfulness of credits, you know, be, just by simple virtue of the fact that they are an oversimplification of the creative process, and because of the fact that, that people in the industry do know that, that ghostwriting is a thing, then I think people in the industry also know that that sometimes you have to take the credits with a pinch of salt. But, but where the credits have a very definite influence is in, in you know, residuals and all those other things that, that create income uh, for artists. But, you know, when you think about that creative process, <coughs> and if we take, even if we take the James Bond theme, you know, Vic Flick, when, when he said, how about if I play it in this octave, you know, is a creative influence when the trumpet player interprets the line and and the conductor says yeah i like how you interpreted that line there's a creative influence there now it might be a minor creative influence but my point being though that the that the pure credit is a simplification of the creative process and as i said people in the industry know that ghostwriting is a thing so i think that they there is something to what Terry said earlier, that, that, that people do go more on reputation than on credits. Yeah, yeah. Peter, I'm curious. Do you find it, do you find it interesting that uh, he didn't do a lot of concerts, but he did later on in his career in the 90s. I was very fortunate to attend one of them. He always played the James Bond theme in them. And, and, you know, and I know Monty's getting a check from that, and I'm, I'm assuming he does. But he still insisted on playing it. Does that surprise you? Uh, no, it doesn't surprise me because I think uh, he, I think uh, Barry had an, a substantial amount of uh, input into the James Bond film, um, and it was clearly a key a key piece of music. People would expect it to be to be played. He, I mean, he gets the credit on the. Uh, when you look at the uh, credits for the film, it says James Bond theme played by played by John Barry and orchestra. That's yeah. the credit. Um, 
but also, I mean, he used from Russia with love. I mean, from Russia with love, he included in his uh, in his concerts. And that, True, that yeah. was composed by Lionel. But he also used um, "Smile" by Chaplin in his concerts, and of course, that was composed by uh, Charles Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I don't think uh, you know he he wasn't he wasn't loath to include uh, material composed by some other people. But I do believe that on the James Bond theme. He, his input was substantial. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I, well, could spe- I would like to speculate something. Speculate away. Okay. I think John Barry would have and did a little bit uh, pull back, pull back, pull back from the James Bond theme and push forward his 007 theme to replace as much as possible the James Bond theme, but yeah. it was too iconic to replace, so he's kind of stuck with it. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and yet I thought that was a very effective theme. I, I, uh, Definitely. I love it. I love well, it. Now. It's been used several times in the films. Well, uh, gentlemen, we... Great go theme, ahead. Frank. Uh, I'm yes. sorry? 007 is a great theme, but it is less uh, reusable. In that it, you know, the, 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 the structure of that theme means it can only really work when there's a certain amount, when there's a certain style of cinematic movement. Whereas I think that the advantage of the James Bond theme is it can score an action sequence just as much as it can score James Bond swaggering through an airport. You know, the, the <laughs> yeah, I see your point. Wasn't really quite as reusable as that. I think that was its other disadvantage. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Good point. Well, listen, gentlemen, as we, as we, and I think we do need to wrap this up, um, I'd like to hear from each of you uh, as kind of like final thoughts. And I, and I guess the way I was thinking about this is that um, given what we've learned today about what this court case was about and its limitations, and we're not here to reverse that uh, decision by any stretch, but I am kind of curious if you had a magic wand and would, uh, you know, could change anything about the... Uh, the outcome of uh, of this whole episode, not the court case per se, but just the episode of who wrote the theme and those sorts of things. If you had a magic wand, would you change anything, or would you uh, would you or what would you change? And I'll just go ahead and start with Stephen. I think it would be nice to have an acknowledgement that that John Barry's uh, influence in the James Bond theme is not sufficiently recognised. <laughs> in the words, arrangement, and orchestration. As we've said before, there is a massive amount of creative transformation from uh, good sign, bad sign, to the James Bond theme. And I think, and I I personally put forward that John Barry was the majority transformative force. Whatever semantics you want to use, I believe he was the majority transformational and I would like to see that recognized and I don't think it is adequately recognized uh, when, when when the only words you see are James Bond theme composed by Monty Moore. Yeah, no, fair enough. And by the way, Stephen, I should point out, I, my own personal recommendation, you, you should get into politics. You're really good at this. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's really good at this. Yeah. Um, Peter, your, your, your thoughts, final thoughts about it, again, if you had a magic wand. Well, I think, as I, as I said, the, the actual credits on the, uh, the film 
on the film main on <coughs> titles. It says, music composed by Monty Norman, conducted by Eric Rogers, orchestrated by Burt Rhodes, <laughs> James Bond theme played by John Barry and orchestra. I mm. mean, that is pretty... I mean, I don't think it mattered at the time, but I think as years went by, I think it probably did matter quite a bit to, to John Barry. I think... I agree with Steve. I think that in, a, in an ideal world, <coughs> John Barry's influence as a, as a he's not even as a writer, as a composer, and an arranger would be reflected on the credits. I would personally put composed by John Barry, based on a theme by Monty Norman. Ooh, okay. Yeah. That would be that in an ideal world, but I mean that isn't going to happen. I mean the reality is that uh, Monty's got the credit. Right, that's that, not going to happen, but it's a magic yeah. wand, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay. Gee, I wonder what Terry's going to say. <laughs> uh, I think to the casual listener, people don't care one way or the other, but to film music fans and and serious listeners, they already know. They, they can just tell from the music that uh, John Barry's put out, you know, who, who did what. But two things remain. What John Barry did with James Bond music was he created, I would call it a chimera. It's a fabulous creature of the imagination. It's a hybrid, you know, between this animal and this animal and this animal that's never existed before. He, his, his orchestration is just insane. The, the use of instrument selection, the style of the performance. It's, it, he brought a modernization to a kind of a, a creaky platform of uh, spy and melodrama that totally transformative, uh, wildly successful first hearing of what he produced. People must have been falling out of their chairs like, wow, where'd this guy come from? So I would say this, Monty Norman was a fuse lit by the producers in the contract. And when it got to the dynamite, that's John Barry, and the explosion is John Barry. Well said. Well said. Gentlemen, I, goodness, I've had just a delightful time talking about this topic and learning a lot uh, about this topic. You, you, you've, you've been a, a tremendous help for me to understand the issue a lot better and hopefully to a lot of our listeners as well. Now, people have no idea what it takes to be able to get like three people together from all kinds of different time zones and and uh, and schedules and those sorts of things and uh, uh, we pulled it off fellas it took a couple of tries but we did pull it off and I want to also give a particular thanks to our uh, I guess my one-time producer for this particular podcast <laughs> that being Terry who whose idea it was to do this topic and I don't know why I never wanted to broach it before but, uh, but Terry talked me into it, and we kind of gathered who I think are people that are extremely well qualified to talk about this and, and give us different angles and perspectives, both uh, uh, objective and emotional and people who observe things like the trial and whatnot. So uh, this panel was just terrific. It was a great panel. I, it, it was. And I, and I, I want to encourage our listeners, please uh, send me comments, what your thoughts are on this. Uh, whether you agreed with it or not, and you know, I'd like to hear that. Please press like on wherever you listen to this podcast. That would be helpful as well. I know that I have some other Facebook friends out there that want different opinions. I'd love to hear from you. So anyway, with that, again, I want to thank our guests, Stephen Wilson, Peter Greenhill, and Terry Wallstrom for 
just a terrific discussion. Thanks so much for joining us for this very special edition of What's the Score? And a little bit different than what you normally do, but hopefully just as uh, valuable for all of you. So with that, there's only thing, only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name's Frank R. Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score?